I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, the institution of marriage has evolved considerably in recent decades. Couples are marrying later and split the financial and emotional responsibility. But can any one person be the key to our happiness? It's not so much that we expect too much of marriage, maybe, as we expect too little of other relationships. We're losing our sense that we also have important obligations and satisfactions that come from our other social networks, not just our friends and extended kin, but even, you know, casual strangers that we interact with. And later, for some, a relationship works best not just with one partner, but with many. One size does not fit all in relationships. That for some people, polyamory is going to be a hot mess, going to be the kiss of death. For other people, it will be the perfect relationship form. Reflections on marriage, monogamy, and polyamory, all ahead on Life Examined. Marriage is one of the oldest institutions in the world. It dates back thousands of years. Those early alliances were most often not love matches so much as unions to ensure land and bloodline. The common misconception that the wife was subservient to her husband only evolved over the last few centuries. In fact, according to our guest, for most of history, women were full co-providers. As we know, contemporary life continues to reshape marriage. Though some same-sex couples embrace the institution, there are professional women who are marrying later and frequently out-earn their spouses. So why marry if you can just cohabit? Could tying the knot go out of style? Historian and director at the Council on Contemporary Families, Stephanie Kuntz, has spent her career studying intimate relationships and is the author of Marriage, A History, How Love Conquered Marriage. Kuntz says marriage today is like, quote, buying into a very high-stakes game. And she joins us now. Stephanie Kuntz, welcome to Life Examined. Oh, my pleasure. Um, let's jump into some some human history here. Uh, what do we know about um, human life before marriage? I mean, what was the nature of intimate relationships going way back when? Well, frankly, we don't know a lot about it. But one of the things we do know that's interesting and goes against a lot of assumptions is that um, a lot of the development of, of human sociability and human evolution was dependent upon cooperation beyond the family. And one of the ways that the early societies seemed to have, the earliest band level societies seemed to have achieved that cooperation, there were many things. There were trading exchanges, there were uh, rituals, uh, artwork, all of these things. But marriage was one way of spreading social cooperation beyond the biological family because it gave you invented family members through the inventions mm. of in-laws. And when we look at contemporary uh, foraging societies or their histories, uh, what we know of them, it's very interesting that they tend to have a much broader definition of in-laws, Just not, not just my husband's brother, but my husband's brother's brother or his wife. So what marriage seems to have done in the early days is spread around the cooperation and the sharing of resources, of knowledge, of um, obligations to people. Uh, sort of the opposite that it started to do right. uh, in the ancient world when people began to develop endogamy and refusing to marry with people outside their own group. So it seems like there's there's a lot of practicality behind it, even 50,000 years ago. What about the notion of monogamy as, as humans, as a species, whether we are monogamous or not? I feel like there's always a lot of debate about that. What are your thoughts? 
Well, my thoughts are that uh, humans have an awful lot of flexibility mm. that we um, and I, I suspect that what we have is we have the capacity for monogamy and the capacity for polyamory or polygamy uh, or whatever, and that different cultural and social and economic circumstances tend to push the needle in one direction or the other. But I suspect that for all our lives, for the rest of history, we'll struggle with that um, sense that, well, gosh, it would be nice to you know, be able to be count on one person mm. and uh, to know that we're uh, exclusive and the, the temptation to, to experiment with other people. Uh, so I don't think that it, I think what's in human nature is that we have conflicting, ambivalent ideas about things and that we have to make choices about it. Mm. So uh, if we get back now to this 50,000 years ago, early forms of marriage. These don't, I mean, when you use the, the phrase arranged marriage, the word love <laughs> doesn't seem to come to mind immediately. Um, what do you think they were like? What were those early forms of bonding like? Through most of history, as far as I can tell, those romantic sexual sparks were considered quite different than the kind of relationship that you entered into uh, in a marriage or something of that kind. Um, some, some societies allow, uh, some contemporary foraging societies where people can marry a, a couple of times, the second or third marriage might be for love, but the first one might be uh, to make alliances between kin groups or to, uh, you know, because the, these, are, these are good working partners. You know, one of the things that we see in early marriages is that there was a division of labor that's quite different than what we are told. You know, I was, I'm old enough to have been brought up on the idea that well, marriage was invented because poor little women couldn't protect themselves from predators and mm. they couldn't hunt meat. And the men went out and hunted all of the food. And in return, women offered them uh, sexual right. fidelity. Mm. Uh, that turns out to be very unlikely. Uh, first of all, who was protecting the women when the men were out, uh, you know, hunting the wild animals? Mm. <laughs> Secondly, from what we know, um, women gather in, in all, most all foraging societies 60 to 80% of the calories. So men might have been more dependent on marriage than women, particularly since male hunting, uh, you know, you, get, you send a hunting party out and they don't always succeed. Mm. So somebody has to come home and have somebody who's gathered something. And, and if I can jump forward, sure. you know, yeah, tens of thousands of years, <laughs> as, as groups began to develop hortable and defendable uh, property, uh, mm. property owned by the kin group or, or, you know, not just individuals, but at any rate, it's something that you could really defend for yourself and you had the incentive to develop surpluses. Well, this is when you get a total change in the nature of marriage, and it's quite a striking change. Women are particularly controlled because you don't want a woman to bear a child to someone outside your class and your lineage, mm. which is why for uh, thousands of years, you know, um, illegitimacy was the foundational uh, coercive tool that was used to keep people in marriage, that um, uh, you're, a child born out of marriage was a filius nullius, literally a child of no one entitled to nothing. And so women's sexuality becomes much more controlled, their labor becomes much more controlled, and we do see marriage uh, coming up through all of these uh, thousands of years of patriarchy where the, the fathers make the decision as to who to marry them and you know that charming uh, wedding technique we mm. wedding tradition we have today of the father giving away the um, wife but mm -hmm. the daughter well literally turning over 
control of that woman and her property to the man. So it's only really in the last 150 years that we've begun to challenge that and to move forward. Some people would say go back a little bit to a more egalitarian notion of what we want out of marriage. Mm, interesting. I mean, so if we think now of, of what it means to be in a somewhat modern marriage, certainly life has, has changed a lot. I mean, I think our notion of property has changed. Um, we, we see, of course, women entering the workplace, oftentimes outpacing men in terms of finances. I, I wonder how, how you understand the picture of marriage now in the modern day. Well, uh, there's there's good news and bad news. Like there isn't so many things in our society. Right. Uh, the good news is that at, on an individual level, men and women really have are moving remarkably quickly toward acceptance and enactment of egalitarian relations. I mean, as late as the end of the 70s, the majority of Americans thought that the men should make the decisions in the household and should be the breadwinner and that women should, you know, uh, always stay home and mm. take care of the kids in the home. That's been upended now. As late as the 1980s, if a man had more education than his wife or if a wife, a woman earned more than her husband, that was a risk factor for divorce because the men were threatened. Today it's not. Increasingly, the most satisfactory marriages we find, the ones that report the highest marital satisfaction, the lowest amount of conflict, the highest sexual satisfaction, are ones where housework and childcare are um, uh, shared relatively equally. Uh, so that's the good news about marriage. But the other side of that is, um, there's two pieces of bad news. One is that our social uh, institutions have not caught up. Our work institutions still assume basically that every worker has a full-time employee at home to take care of the rest of life. Mm -hmm. And we don't have the kind of flexibility and, and parental leave policies that we should have. And the other thing that is an interesting problem is that the whole basis of marital security in what some people think of as the good old days of the 1950s was that men could get a man, even without a high school degree, could get a job easily mm -hmm. and within a few years be earning three to four times as much as his father had earned at the same age. So there were these tremendous opportunities for men, but for women, you couldn't... You, you, you couldn't. Your only way you could participate in that uh, expanding post-war economy was by getting married. And that was the basis of marriage. Now, today, with women entering the labor force, men's positions still still slightly higher in terms of wages with anyone at an equal, um, equal education, uh, their, their jobs are much less secure. The real wages have fallen for the lower 60% of the population. Women's wages have been rising from a lower base. And a woman now has to say to herself, well, uh, yes, uh, gosh, I, first of all, I'm in love. That's nice. Mm -hmm. um, but secondly, a, mar a marriage would be really good if we, ha if we were had two cooperative people earning incomes and cooperating together. But then she has to ask herself, um, but does that mean he's going to still expect me to do all the cleaning and the housework, which mm -hmm. I really don't want to do? And what if he loses his job or misuses our resource? So marriage has become a more fraught decision for people from uh, whose prospective partners 
uh, don't have as good economic and educational prospects. And we're seeing a totally new class divide in access to marriage. As late as the 1970s, uh, marriage rates were basically the same uh, across economic and educational uh, levels. Now there's a huge class divide and people who uh, with less education and fewer economic uh, stability prospects are very hesitant to get married, uh, in part because they see that that kind of economic stress undermines the cooperation that is now necessary in an egalitarian marriage and leads so much for divorce. Hmm. I mean, if we think about this kind of philosophically for a second, I mean, what what are the reasons in your mind to then to still get married these days? What are the, what what comes with it that's of great benefit? Well, I think that I, I don't think marriage is going to disappear. As we look all around the world, and even in countries like the Nordic countries, where lots of people don't don't get married or they don't get married until they've had their second or, or third child, um, people tend to associate marriage with the strongest commitment you can make. Mm. And a lot of people are going to want to make a strong commitment with their significant other. Um, despite the fact that there there are more people who, who want to live, um, you know, a life that is more free than that, that you know, that, that still remains a very important goal. So what is so marriage offers that kind of security to people, and they want that. But the other thing is, it, today in a society of dual earners, marriage is like it's like um, <laughs> I think of it sometimes as it's it's a buy-in to a very high-stakes game. Hmm. Uh, if you've got the education and economic and interpersonal resources to make your marriage work that's going to be a huge benefit you're going to you're going to save money by being together you're going to earn money with the two of you you're going to be able to put things together you're going to be able to collaborate in child rearing but if you don't have that opening bid or you can't afford uh, something when if it goes wrong people are going to be very hesitant to marry or to marry you and i think that's what we're seeing in terms of this class divide in in marriage how do you make sense of divorce rates? Um, and, and maybe you can you can update us as to where they are. Well, divorce rates have been falling, actually, for hmm. the past uh, 15, 20 years, but they've been falling um, bet more among educated and economically stable couples. Uh, and they have not really gone down for people who are facing the kind of economic stresses. You know, researchers increasingly find that uh, one of the best predictors of severe marital conflict and divorce is not your family of origin stories, but just how much economic stress and insecurity uh, mm. you're experiencing. And people will say to me, well, but that wasn't true back in, uh, you know, back in the 1950s, uh, poor people didn't have such high divorce rates. Well, that's because women could not support themselves. And that's because we had different expectations of marriage. The kind of greater, higher expectations that I don't think you or I would want to give up that we have of marriage today. And the options we have outside marriage make it much more important than it used to be that you commit to somebody who you are pretty sure you're not going to have to be arguing over who does the dishes every mm. night. Yeah, no, I mean, these these are all good points. And, and I think there's there's another component about this, too, which is what what are the other things we expect from our partners uh, as well? Um in terms of emotional bonding, interests, collaboration, or shared interests. I mean, because, again, thinking again about that timeline of marriage as a contractual relationship to, you know, to maintain property or bloodlines, certainly there's a whole bundle of new expectations that go into a marriage now. 
There are, there are. And I think that's actually one of the problematic elements, even for the people most emotionally mature and ready to commit to, to a partnership. And that is that it's, it's not so much that we expect too much of marriage, maybe, as we expect too little of other relationships. Hmm. We're losing our sense that we also have important obligations and satisfactions that come from our other social networks. Sometimes not just our friends and extended kin, but even you know casual strangers that we interact with. And research shows that those cheerful interactions with uh, you know the person who makes coffee or the person who sells your newspaper to you, they can affect our well-being for a week at a time. Uh, and as we do not pay attention to those uh, and try to get everything from our marital relationship, we when it works, it works great. But we're increasing the odds that we won't be able to get all of our needs met by that person. And that instead of doing the obvious and, you know, expanding our social networks, we'll decide that that person is not meeting all our needs and we'll have to leave them. Uh, And I think that this is really something that's very important for people, even in the best marriages, to, to pay attention to. That our research finds that if you have a a group of people who meet lots of needs, you know, one person who you go to when you're feeling ticked off about something, another person you can talk about ideas with, another person you can do this with. Instead of expecting all of it from your partner, you tend to have happier relationships in general mm-hmm. with your friends and with your partner. And the, um, the research about old age is absolutely compelling, that the best predictor of a successful and uh, well-being in your old age is the amount of social networks, friendship networks, and social integration that you have, not just the, not just your partner, who you mm-hmm. could always lose, you know? Mm-hmm. I remember I once ran into a, a psychotherapist who said something kind of interesting about American relationships. I wonder if you'd agree or disagree with this, which is that oftentimes we pride a marriage on its longevity and its length and not necessarily the quality of the relationship. Do you think that's true? Well, I don't think it's true anymore. I think that was a critique that was made um, in the, you know, up until very recently. Mm-hmm. I think people today do spend a lot of time thinking about the quality of their marriages. Not, 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 not always. There's a whole moralistic group of people who just defines it by how long, uh, <laughs> how long the marriage has lasted, not whether what was going on it was any good for both or right, either right. Uh, of the partners. But I think that increasingly Americans are beginning to define the relationship by its quality, not by its quantity or its length. And that's another challenge because no relationship is at its 100% top (laughs) at every um, point in the game. Mm -hmm. And so that's another reason that it's important to uh, sometimes remember your single life and and cultivate those other relationships and satisfactions as well as those that are with your partner. Mm. There's been some interesting studies, too, that have shown that straight couples can learn something or straight marriages can often learn things from gay marriages, uh, certain attributes and characteristics that have been quite helpful about how to how to split up uh, and divvy up responsibilities. Can you say more about that? Oh, absolutely. There is a tremendous amount that people can learn uh, from 
same-sex marriages. I mean, and, and that's understandable because for the past 200 years, we were socialized into this idea that men and women were totally different. They had different drives. Men were ambitious and breadwinners and women were this way and they were caretakers. And so you see a lot of tensions between men and women in heterosexual relationships. What's interesting about same-sex uh, relationships is when you have two women um, both of them have been socialized into some of the women caregiving, so they're kind of equal in terms of how much uh, support they offer each other, and that's a lot, <laughs> And how, but how much also they get back. And when you have two men, they've been socialized into the male thing, but they don't have a woman to take over for them as you do in, in the different sex couples. Mm. And so they have to pay attention when someone really needs it. So the, uh, in general, those male-male relationships tend to be less intense, less worried about feelings and stuff, but willing to confront it uh, when something happens. It's uh, the, the, the most tension over, you know, what, what's caregiving, what is, what, do you understand each other's emotions comes in the heterosexual ones. The other big thing that happens is that same-sex couples, because they don't come to the, their, their marriage or their uh, coupledom with a set of stereotypes of what each one is an expert at and the other one should be an expert at something else, they have to sit down and talk much more honestly about and frankly about, well, how are we going to divide this up? Mm. Uh, let's not assume that this one is yours and this one's mine. And incidentally, to return to your earlier comment about polyamory, um, they also have to discuss their sexual wants and needs much more and discuss that, well, do we want to be exclusive or do we not? And it turns out that those kinds of discussions would be important and helpful to have for heterosexuals as well as same-sex couples. Mm, interesting. How, how have you seen kind of marriage play out in the age of COVID? I, I kind of see different data about whether people are all getting divorced or staying together, but what have you seen come out of this? Well, we're just beginning to get, um, you know, the, the, the data in on that. Uh, we know for sure that People have really cut back on having babies. <laughs> uh, we know that there are some couples who are really feeling the stress and the tension. Uh, and uh, they may have done divorce searches. Whether they'll uh, go ahead with those divorces, we just don't know. Uh, there are other couples who, who feel like they're getting stronger out of it. Um, so it's really a moving target at this point, And I, I don't feel comfortable um, you know, predicting which way we'll go, but we do have we do have some interesting findings about what's happening to the gender equality, hmm. and they seem conflicting. Like you said at the beginning of the program, uh, some studies show that the men have really, at least men who were already doing some housework and childcare, have really upped their game. Uh, maybe not to full equality, but they are doing uh, a lot more at home. But then you get these other studies that show that the women are just overwhelmed. Mm. And the key difference seems to be whether these are families where um, homeschooling has been necessary because of, of distance learning. And my own take on that is sort of a glass half full, glass half empty. I think that for 200 years, women have been told we're the experts in this. Men have been told they're the experts, you know, women are the experts in this. And so it took us a long time to convince men that this invisible labor they'd already been, you know, able to ignore for so long, childcare and housework, mm. really needed to be done. 
And they've started to do it. And we know from studies of paternity leave that when men take paternity leave and get involved in that, years later, it affects the way they behave at home, the way they treat their female, uh, their, their female uh, kids, uh, and so forth. But this, in this um, uh, lockdown, they were suddenly hit with a totally new task that would, was overwhelming to anybody, you know, in their right mind. Uh, and I think the fallback position, the sort of, um, you know, inherited um, idea that, okay, is, oh my gosh, a men can't do this. Oh my gosh, uh, a woman's going to have to do this. And it's in, in the areas that are doing homeschooling, it's really fallen greatly upon the women. Uh, and that is, it, that's going to be it. That's a real challenge to the marriages. It's an even bigger challenge to the fact that we have not yet come up with a, an understanding that women are fully involved in the workforce and we've got to have a better uh, child care and education system. I wonder, too, if you would reflect on this for a moment. You know, I think today there's a lot of professional women who are having a hard time finding a husband. And, and I wonder, is, is, is singlehood underrated? Are there benefits to being unattached and not in a monogamous relationship? Oh, well, there are lots of benefits to singlehood and lots of ways to get satisfaction. Um, and in fact, you know, when people tell me that professional women can't find a husband and stuff as a historian, I have to say, well, it's not that they couldn't get one. It's that they're not willing to settle for what women had to settle for in the mm -hmm. past, you know, <laughs> let's, let's be clear. Uh, you know, the expectations are much higher and that, you know, that's a challenge. Um, it's a challenge to men and women alike, but I think, you know, women are changing faster than men, so there are some, some differences there. But when we look at singlehood, uh, we find that there is a period when uh, women go through a, a thinking, you know, you know, that, oh, that they're really missing out on something. But once they move through that period and you look at women who have been single all their lives in their 50s and 60s, they're just as happy as married women and much happier than divorced women. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, they, uh, so there's a lot to be gained for men and women by uh, at least experiencing singlehood for a period of time before you've married so that you understand how to take care of yourself and you're not dependent on another person. Um, the other big difference between married and single people we find is that um, single people are much more good at cultivating their social networks. Uh, and married people tend to, especially after they have kids, sort of drop back from that. And uh, it may seem like cocooning is a comfortable thing, but in the long run, as they get older, uh, they may find that they've grown apart or that they just don't have the outside resources they need. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that really uh, angers me when I hear people say that, oh, married people are more responsible is, hey, you know, single people are actually more likely than their married siblings to be taking care of elders and their parents or doing volunteer work. So um, it's play, room for everybody in this. And what we all should notice is that most of us, even people like me who are, you know, old married people, uh, will go through, uh, you know, my I didn't get married until my late 30s. Um, you, you're you going to go through a period of life as a single. And if you get divorced or your partner dies, you're going to go through another period of life as a single. So we better all be prepared to handle both and stop thinking that one is better and one is permanent. Finally, is there any data on whether marriage makes someone happier or less happy? 
Oh, there's lots of lots of arguments about that. Um, a lot of people think that most of the marriage benefit is selection. That we find that that people um, who get married tend to have been getting happier in the years just before it, and then they continue getting happier for years, and then it, it levels off. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's certainly evidence that a good marriage. Uh, can improve uh, people's functioning, improves people's satisfaction with life, uh, but so can a good singlehood. Um, but the, the real big difference between when people tell you that married people are happier is that they're comparing apples and oranges. They're comparing married people with all people who are currently unmarried, which includes divorced people mm. and widowed people. And it turns out that most of the difference is from people who uh, are divorced and might have been unhappy that helps help lead to the divorce so there's lots of different roads to happiness <laughs> yeah uh, well put well stephanie coons thank you so much for for sharing your research and your expertise with us here on kcrw we appreciate it oh well i enjoyed speaking with you thanks once again, that was Stephanie Coons. She's a social historian and director at the Council on Contemporary Families and also the author of Marriage, a History. Still to come, are humans meant to be monogamous? And what happens when a couple becomes a throuple? That's ahead on Life Examined. Stay with us. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. We just heard Stephanie Kuntz, director at the Council on Contemporary Families and author of Marriage, a History, comment on the advances and challenges of contemporary marriage. In particular is this question of how much we've come to expect from our partners. So would some people just be happier to scrap the idea of having one soulmate when they can have many soulmates at the same time? Elizabeth Sheff is professor at the University of Tennessee and is the author of When Someone You Love is Polyamorous, Understanding Poly People and Relationships. She says that with high rates of divorce and infidelity, monogamy clearly isn't for everybody, whereas polyamory offers freedom and variety. Elizabeth Sheff, welcome to Life Examined. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. If we kind of start with the basics for some of our listeners, um, how do we define polyamory? What does that look like? What is, how does it work? Polyamory is a form of consensual non-monogamy where people emphasize emotional intimacy among more partners than two. So sometimes that looks like one person having multiple relationships with people who all know about each other. Other times that looks kind of like a group relationship with people hanging out and spending time together, sometimes sexually, sometimes not. But the biggest thing is that it's a negotiated and agreed upon access to multiple partners, which distinguishes it from cheating. And and how did you become an expert in this? What kind of led you to studying so much about polyamory? 
Initially, I got interested in studying polyamory through my personal experience of falling in love with someone who was very clear that he never wanted to be monogamous. And at first, I didn't really care because I didn't think that relationship had much future to it. So I didn't pay that much attention. But once I was in love with him, I realized that I was completely freaked out mm-hmm. by that. I'd never really thought about it before. And I, it just scared me. So I started looking for resources. And by the time I had found groups practicing it and people to talk to about it, I was in graduate school studying sociology. And after about a year and a half, I would say, of just hanging out with people in polyamorous relationships and kind of chatting with them about it, I realized it would be interesting to study it that no one had studied it yet. And I was slightly wrong about that in that around that same time, Meg Barker in England and Maria Pallada Chiaroli in Australia were also studying it, but none of us knew knew about each other yet. So we each thought we were the only ones. And what did you find studying polyamorous couples, relationships, communities? I mean, what were some of the things that jumped out to you? Well, I would say the first thing that maybe coming from a monogamous perspective, like I was, when my partner told me he wanted polyamory, we didn't have the word for it then, actually. He just said he didn't want to be monogamous. Mm -hmm. I heard that, and I think many monogamous people interpret that as you're too fat and you're bad in bed. You know, I heard it as a lack on my part. And it was only through talking to other people in polyamorous relationships over and over, they said it wasn't a lack on their partner's part that pretty much whoever they were with, they would always want more partners, that it was hardwired into them. And that, I think, is especially true of the early adopters who were there at the beginning of my study, the people who were already involved in polyamory in the 1990s. A lot of them, I think, worked hard to find the community and faced more challenges finding and adopting that identity. So more of them, I think, are polyamorous by orientation. Now that the community has grown so much, I'm also finding people who are polyamorous by lifestyle, that it's a choice they're making and they may not do it permanently or they may do it permanently, but they're not as deeply polyamorous as an orientation for them. It's more something that works for them or something they're choosing for now. And I think a lot of the early adopters were more kind of by default found polyamory when they tried every kind of form of monogamy they could and nothing worked for them. Mm. So the distinction between being a lifestyle and an orientation, the fact that polyamory can be both or either, I think is quite interesting. 
You know, I think there's a very reductionist viewpoint of this, probably coming from uh, the monogamous perspective, which is that it's all about sexual relationships, kind of exploring those urges outside of a monogamous relationship. But I, I have a feeling it's a lot more complex than that. So when you began to really interview folks in this community, I, I wonder kind of the reasons they gave you for pursuing this lifestyle. That's a great question. And you are, you hit it on the head that it is not just about sex. Definitely not. People primarily say they're interested in polyamory as a way to get a wider variety of needs met. Hmm. But having all of your needs met by one partner puts a lot of stress and strain on that one partner. And maybe there are needs that they can't or don't want to meet and being able to spread those out among multiple people actually means more people getting more needs met in polyamorous relationships and i would say that well the sexuality aspect of it gets kind of the most press it's definitely the most sexy headline mm. What actually, so this is a longitudinal study I'm doing, meaning I've been chatting with these folks since 1996. I check, with, check in with them about every five years or so. So what's really stood out to me as these relationships last, some of them, you know, I've been talking to these folks for 25 years. Some of them were already together for 25 or 30 years when I met them. So these, some of these relationships are incredibly long-lasting. And what becomes clear to me as I talk to these folks who've maintained polyamorous relationships for decades is that it's the emotional connections that are the most important. So important that I made up a word for them, the emotional non-sexual connections in polyamorous relationships end up being the glue of the family. So I called those polyaffective hmm. relationships, that the emotion is the most important. And over time, it is the polyaffective component of polyamorous relationships that is the make or break component. So especially between metamors and a metamor is a word that polyamorists made up for a partner's partner. So let's say there's um, a married couple, two wives, and one of the wives has a boyfriend, but the wife, the other wife and the boyfriend, they know each other, they're friends, but they're not lovers, let's say. So the boyfriend and the non-sexual wife would have a polyaffective metamor relationship. And when those two get along, when the metamors like each other and support the relationship, it goes great. If the metamors can't stand each other, that relationship is in for some rough times. Hmm. I want to return to something you said a minute ago, which was this question of having one's needs met by a single partner and and how for some that that may seem impossible. I wonder if you can elaborate on that anymore or give us some examples. It's an interesting one. 
we have such higher expectations of our partners right now than ever before historically. Historically, your spouse was maybe your business mate, maybe your, you know, the person you had children with, but they were never necessarily your best friend. You know, marriages were much more practical in the past than being focused on being in love and being that person's soulmate. You know, that's a that's a really high level to expect, a soulmate who is not only your best friend, but the best lover you've ever had and an excellent financial planner mm. and a fantastic companion and the perfect person to vacation with, but also to have children with and provides stability and surprise and you know you can really count on them but they're also spontaneous you know it's mm. just so much to expect from one relationship and all of these functions used to be in past societies spread out among many more people than just the marital partner and now we've really shrunk our social world and what we expect down and emphasized one partner who's supposed to be the source of all of these things. And obviously polyamory is not the only solution to that, but it is a way to take some of the pressure off of the primary partnership and off of the spouse to be every single thing and meet every need you might ever have. That's, I mean, it's no surprise really that so many relationships end in divorce if we have these incredibly unrealistically high expectations of our partners to be everything to us. And then we're disappointed when they can't. What about the the idea that bringing in other people or or uh, sleeping with other people creates an inherent kind of messiness or that a uh, dysfunction within the primary relationship uh, again it may be a simplistic notion but i think for some that that may be what comes to mind when you start um introducing these new elements into a relationship it definitely increases complexity and increases the need for clear communication, clear boundaries, for introspection. People have to really think about what do they want, what can they tolerate, what is intolerable, what is their favorite thing, what do they really, really, really want, and what could they just put up with, and then be able to communicate that among more than two people. So it increases complexity, absolutely. And if monogamy were so functional and perfect and unmessy for people, we would not see the levels of divorce and cheating mm. we do. Monogamy is clearly incredibly fraught for some people, very difficult to maintain, and very unsatisfying. For other people though, I think monogamy fits them perfectly and is not difficult to maintain. I think just as some people are polyamorous by orientation, 
I think there are some people who are monogamous, deeply monogamous by orientation, who would never feel comfortable in a non-monogamous relationship. And for them, I think it would introduce pathology into their life. Trying to maintain polyamory would be incredibly painful for them, much like trying to maintain monogamy for it, someone who's polyamorous by orientation. I think attempting to maintain monogamy in that state is also very painful. So I guess it comes down to one size does not fit all in relationships. That for some people, polyamory is going to be a hot mess, going to be the kiss of death. For other people, it will be the perfect relationship form. Here's just another very general question that boils down to some very basic emotions we have, which are questions of jealousy and heartbreak and and how, and maybe it gets to this question you were just talking about, which is one of tolerance. But I think for a lot of people, it's hard to divorce this idea of of somehow, you know, the monogamous sexual relationship equals trust and love and fidelity. And somehow that's all bunched up there together. And once that gets severed, then um, then there is true pain that comes through. I, I wonder if you've thought about that and how that's played out in some of the relationships you've seen. I've absolutely thought about that quite a bit, in fact. And while I've mostly talked to people about jealousy. I'm a qualitative researcher and ethnographer. Um, I've also read quite a bit of research from other folks. And Dr. Terry Conley has done some really interesting research on jealousy, finding kind of comparing non-monogamous and monogamous samples mm. and finding that jealousy is actually more prevalent in monogamous relationships. Hmm that they are not supposed to be attracted to other people. So there's much more jealousy and more what they, what sociologists and psychologists call mate guarding behaviors in monogamous relationships. Not that polyamorous people never have to deal with jealousy, but I had also assumed, I guess, when I started doing the research that people would just encounter a lot more jealousy in, in polyamorous relationships. And research indicates just the opposite. I think in part because people who are who have a lot of jealousy probably don't choose polyamory. They know on some level that it's probably not going to work for them, so they don't go there. So probably the people who are drawn to polyamory have... Jealousy is just a smaller feature of their personalities. Well, do you think this is a, a phenomenon we will see more of? Or, or, I mean, dare I say, kind of a trend that, that, is, that is growing? I mean, because I remember here in California, you would hear about these communities in the Bay Area, for example. It seemed like there was a period there where it was, it was really becoming more mainstream, and certainly in other parts of Southern California. But, but I wonder... What you're hearing, what you're seeing, do you, do you see that this is something that, that is uh, kind of growing in, in STEAM and, and, and may become more a part of mainstream life? Absolutely. I think, um, so someone else who's done research on this, Dr. Amy Moores, she looked at the number of Google searches for polyamory and has found this exponential rise in people looking for information 
about it. So if that's an indication of interest, absolutely, that's kind of one quantitative measure. Um, another important quantitative measure, I would say, is now we're looking at incidents in the population, and this one blew my mind, that 20% of people in the United States have had a consensually non-monogamous relationship. Hmm. Fully one in five people, and that's across age, race and ethnicity, that's across location. You know, that means 20% of the people you know have had a threesome or have dated as a couple or have had a long-term multiple partner relationship. Um, so 20% have had some kind of consensual non-monogamy and 5% of the population has an ongoing consensually non-monogamous uh, relationship. And that is more, that 5%, that's higher than if you combine all of the LGBT folks together, they reach up to, I think, 4%. Hmm. So consensual non-monogamy is far more common than we have thought in the past. It's just been clandestine. And I think it will absolutely grow, not only in incidence, but in acceptance, because people are realizing that monogamy doesn't necessarily work as well for a lot of people as we had thought in the past. And monogamy was so much easier to maintain when people were dead by the time they were 40. And, you know, lifespans were much shorter and people, if you had to walk everywhere you went, then you only met maybe three to 500 people in your entire life, half of whom you were already related to. So short lifespan and limited partner choice made monogamy make a lot of sense. Now people hit their seventies and they're not necessarily, you know, hanging up their relationship for the rest of their life. They're getting a Harley Davidson and they're going on Tinder <laughs> in seventies, you know, like people, <laughs> right live a lot longer. We have much more sexually active lives, much further into our old age. And we're, we're dissatisfied with monogamy. We, you know, expect to find our soulmate. And when that person inevitably be, it turns out to be a mere mortal and cannot meet every single one of our needs, then monogamy all of a sudden looks much less stable than it used to. And if we look at the number of divorces and how many relationships say they're monogamous, but then actually don't practice monogamy, it's clear that monogamy doesn't work for everyone. Well, I do want to ask for those that may be listening in, in monogamous relationships or marriages like myself. And I wonder if this really does come from more of a religious uh, perspective, but standing up for for the long marriage and the way in which one learns to navigate a life with one person and change with one person and support a person, even when it's hard, that there were ways through it. And that was part of the season of difficulties. But but there there's still value in that. Even though I hear there is a lot of 
other ideas that may work well for a lot of folks. But I, I just I just want to give a voice to that, too. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I want to emphasize that non-monogamy does not work for everyone. In mm. fact, I think it probably works for a minority of people. Um, I think serial monogamy is the most popular form of relationship for a good reason. But the simple existence of other choices does not erase the existence of a monogamous marriage. Mm. You know, I'm all for people who want monogamous marriages absolutely should have them. And if you don't want to try non-monogamy, then don't. If you know it won't be good for you, don't force it on yourself or your partners. It's, it's not for everyone. Dr. Elizabeth Sheff teaches at the University of Tennessee and also the author of When Someone You Love is Polyamorous, Understanding Poly People and Relationships. Thanks for the time today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.